If you have your Bibles, I do invite you to um, turn to 2 Corinthians. It's not uncommon for Christian believers, especially when life does not go the way they think it should, uh, when Christians experience and encounter loss or deep disappointments or some painful adversity, to wonder if Christian faith is worth it. Is following Jesus worth it when it requires me to do things I don't want to do? Or when it forbids me from doing the things I want to do? Or is it worth it when I don't feel the presence of God's love and peace? When I don't see his power at work in my life? And add to it, it does seem like even when I'm praying that my prayers are bouncing off the walls. What then? And there are a lot of people, when the going gets tough, they fold. Maybe not right away, but over time, they fold like a house of cards. This was not true of the Apostle Paul. In spite of the extreme adversity and the suffering that he endured, in spite of there being times in his life where he despairs of life itself, he was nevertheless certain that his faith in Jesus was not misplaced. Even in the worst of times, Paul was comforted that his faith in Jesus was worth it, especially when confronted with the possibility of dying. So as we come now to 2 Corinthians 5, Paul continues to invite us into his thought life, what it is that brought him comfort, that motivated him to count the cost to live fully for Jesus, even though it brought the apostle himself unimaginable suffering and pain and relational hardships in this life. Would you stand for the reading of the Word of God. We're reading from 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked, For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life through Jesus Christ the bread of heaven. Amen. You may be seated. As we come to this passage, it's helpful to understand that um, just the way it begins, it begins with this kind of transitional connecting word for, we know, um, uh, and then he goes on to talk about the, the heavenly building. 
That four connects this passage with the, the passage that immediately precedes it, um, especially verses 16 through 18, where Paul is describing uh, the importance of fixing our eyes on that which is unseen, that which has eternal value, that which is pleasing and glorifying to God. That's what we're to fix our eyes on, not on the things of this world, you know, that sparkle and dazzle, um, but it's here today and gone tomorrow. In verse 1, Paul contrasts our life in the present to that which is to come when he describes it as a building from God in the heavens. In verse 1, there are these two key um, word pictures, uh, these metaphors that Paul uses to make a contrast. In describing this life, this mortal life, he, he says, um, he describes it as a tent. For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed. He uses this metaphor of a tent in contrast to this building made by God, not with uh, human hands, um, uh, that's in the heavens, eternal in the heavens. And this is just a, a continuing thought. You know, he's giving um, more description to what he means by fixing our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is um, unseen. And if you think about a tent, and, and this would have been, you know, right down the Apostle Paul's alley as he was a leather worker and he was known for um, uh, uh, making tents, a tent maker, um, that he would have understood that tents it can be a, a, a good, um, it can provide good shelter. And in the ancient world, they would live in tents. These were, you know, very strong uh, tents made with leather and, and, and relatively durable uh, materials. But in, even with that in mind, uh, those materials would wear out. It was always understood that a tent was not a permanent structure. And in contrast, he's saying our life now is like tent life. It's the kind of life that you can fold up and pack it in pretty easily. And the life to come, he describes as this building um, uh, that is from God, a house not made with hands, that it's eternal in the heavens. And so you, you have this kind of metaphor in which he's making a couple points. Number one, the importance of that building from God is that unlike our tent life, it will be permanent. It will be eternal. Um, And then there's a second piece to this that he seems to be tapping into because of the language he's using here. This is the same language that would have been used to describe the building in the Old Testament of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a portable temple. It's where the priests would go. They would offer sacrifices and and that um, where the glory of God actually filled the most holy place of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was called a tent. It had to be portable. They would have to tear it down and move whenever the nation itself was called to move from place to place. But that tabernacle was not a a permanent um, fixture in the life of Israel. When you get to the time of King Solomon, um, uh, uh, Solomon builds a glorious building. You know, it was one of the ancient wonders of the world um, in terms of its, uh, its beauty and, and, and just how um, lavishly filled with treasure and, and uh, precious materials um, filled it. And in some sense, when Paul's describing our tent life now, in contrast to the building made from God, eternal in the heavens, 
you also see this qualitative difference in view, that as we have our earthly bodies, they wear out, they get sick, they ultimately die. But in the world to come, um, we will be given these new resurrection bodies, glorified bodies, that they will not wear out, they will not be affected by sin, they will not get sick, they will not experience pain or sorrow or grief, um, and they will live forever. They will be, and it won't just be, we think of it just being this body, uh, but it'll just be made to last. But this imagery of, of the tent to a building from God, tabernacle to temp, Solomon's temple, gives us this idea that in Paul's view, the resurrected body that will one day be our gift as a result of the, the, the inheritance we have through faith in Jesus, that this body will be qualitatively uh, um, uh, uh, far more beautiful and glorious. We don't know exactly what that body will look like, but it will not just simply be durable, but also um, just this um, uh, full of glory. Now, chief in Paul's mind, um, uh, in using this analogy, is like, uh, it's just the comparison uh, between the, the temporary, the, that which wears out, versus um, the eternal. And it's important to understand that it, when we think of um, uh, uh, what happens after we die, um, that ultimately, in the biblical worldview, there are basically two ages with an interim period, a temporary intermediate state. And the, the first age is this present life, followed ultimately by the return of Jesus. We call that the second coming of Christ. And when he comes, there will be a judgment, um, both of the righteous and of the unrighteous, those with faith in Christ and those who perish in their own sins. And following that judgment and the separation of, 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 of the believers uh, from the unbelievers, there will be a new heavens and a new earth. And, um, and so our consummated bodies will relate to a consummated planet that will also be glorious in its own um, respect. For now, Paul continues in this tent-like existence. But even as we live out our lives in this world, the Spirit gives Paul and us a longing for our true home in the heavenlies. His main idea for this is in verse 2 and in verse 4. He writes, We groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. And this is repeated in verse 4 when he says, For while we are still in this tent, in this body, in this life, we groan. And then verse 5, he tells us this groaning or, or deep spiritual longing for the glory of the future resurrection of believers, this longing for the, the eternal world to come is something that the Holy Spirit imparts to us. Now, to be sure, the groaning for heaven is not to be understood as a complete dissatisfaction with this life, as if there were nothing good or joyful about it. Uh, this would contradict so much of biblical teaching, to be grateful, to be thankful, to take joy, to rejoice in the blessings that we experience in this life. But with that said, there is a continuing recognition that, that 
there is nothing in the created material world that can satisfy our deepest desires and longings. Again, even when we're able to enjoy, you know, the best blessings uh, that this life has to offer, it's almost always mixed with the sense that that relationship, (laughs) uh, that that home, that car, that vacation, whatever it is, fill in the blank, it's not permanent. It will come to an end. And that knowledge creates a tinge of sadness within us, even as we're enjoying the blessing itself. Now, related to this this experience, C.S. Lewis makes an interesting observation when he writes, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. We long for another world, a world of glory, a world of immortality. And Paul is saying that this is precisely what God has planned for us. He has created a world that answers the deepest longings of the human soul, the human spirit. To give us a world of glory and immortality is not peripheral. It is central to God's plans for his people. In Romans 8, Paul writes this, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he, God, predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is sometimes referred to as the golden chain of salvation. The golden chain of salvation that remains unbroken. So that, to just simplify this chain, those, this group of people that God foreknows. He knows us before we are born. He knows his people before they are born. Those whom he foreknew, he predestines. That's a big fancy word. He chose. Okay, that's what that means. He chose. And those whom he chooses, he chooses for a particular uh, destiny. He also calls, that is, he uh, effectually calls them by the Spirit of God to come to faith. And those who are called by the Spirit are ultimately justified. Their sins are forgiven. They are declared righteous, clothed in the righteousness, the perfect righteousness of Jesus. And so they are reconciled with God. And ultimately, this concludes, this this unbroken chain concludes with that same group that God foreknew as being glorified. Glorified. And that's what Paul is tapping into, this idea that salvation is not complete until we experience full glorification. This was part of God's plan from the beginning. And Paul longs for this reality. This is a reality that the Spirit is illuminating to us and even gives us, you know, these small little experiences, maybe in our worship. You know, you can imagine um, uh, uh, Peter and John and James on the mount when Jesus is transfigured before them, and, I mean, light just radiates from his face, and then all of a sudden Moses and Elijah show up on this mountain, 
And Peter is given this foretaste of heaven. And what is his response? Lord, I don't want to leave. Let's build little worship, you know, booths. Let's build some worship shrines and let's just stay. But of course he can't do that. This is only a foretaste. They have to go down that mountain where there are all kinds of real world needs going on. Well, God gives us by the Spirit, he gives us these little foretastes of heaven, sometimes in our worship, sometimes as we're in prayer or studying the word of God. And it's like this glorious truth just bursts out. Or maybe it's in a relationship. You're with one or two or three other close friends and and you're praying, and and you can just feel the the Spirit at work. You have these little foretastes. And this, uh, Paul's saying, is um, a part of what the Spirit is giving to us. But it's not heaven itself. Now, in verse 3, we have this parenthetical thought. A brief aside in Paul's declaration. He writes, for in... um, uh, For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. Now this is uh, the section that's probably the most disputed in terms of what does he mean by being naked? (laughs) Um, And probably the best, um, at least in my view, the best uh, way to understand this is um, the Apostle Paul, um, especially when you read Thessalonians, it really appears that the Apostle Paul believed that, that the Lord Jesus would return before he died. He would return in Paul's lifetime. But here, Paul seems to be allowing for another possibility, this idea of being you know, dead and naked. That is, dead, but he dies before Jesus returns. And this goes to that, that little piece of, uh, of time that I refer to as the intermediate state. That is, well, what happens to those who die before Jesus returns? Do they miss out on the resurrection, you know, getting these glorious new resurrection bodies? And, 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 and of course, the answer is no. They, nevertheless, they die, and they go to be in the presence of the Lord for a temporary period of being um, in a disembodied state, uh, the spirit in the presence of God, awaiting the return of Jesus and the consummation. That is a fancy term just to mean when we receive our new resurrected body and the world is made new. That's the consummation. But if we die before that period, we enter into the presence of God in any case. And what is it, though, that makes um, even that experience? See, biblically, the ultimate reality is an embodied state. It's not like the Greek idea, like you just have to get out of these tombs, you know, that just cause us all kinds of problems. And so the, 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 the best idea is to be a spirit. That's not the biblical view. The biblical view is always this love for material things, the love that of the creation that God has made. And we are part of that material world. And we're to have a very high view of the material world, also recognizing that our final state will be material and spiritual um, together. But what makes heaven heaven, of course, and what makes even this disembodied temporary state heaven 
is the presence of God. It's the presence of Jesus that makes heaven so amazingly glorious. It is the sweetness of his love, the beauty of his presence, the glory of his power and majesty that will take our breath away. And this is why the early church father, St. Augustine writes, O God, you made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And so for this reason, Paul can write in verse 8, when he, he writes, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body, that is, if we die before Christ's return, and at home with the Lord, anticipating this possibility. He returns to this thought with the even greater emphasis in Philippians 1, verses 21 through 23. There the apostle writes, For, me, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And if I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is just as good as life here. No, that's not what it says. No, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is a little bit better. No, that's not what it says. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ now, for that is far better. We can't wrap our minds around this reality. And all of this results in confidence. It results in courage that no matter the challenges and the trials and the adversity that comes our way, Nevertheless, we are to be of good cheer. We are to walk by faith. These are two of the, the kind of uh, uh, result, the, the application points for the apostle in verses 6 through 8. So in verse 6, we are always of good courage. And for emphasis, he repeats this, verse 8. Yes, we are of good courage. He says that even as suffering and death seem to be a continual and immediate threat for the apostle. Nevertheless, because of the great promises of God concerning the future resurrection of the saints and the weight of the glory and immortality of the world to come, that world of life in the direct presence of God, we don't have to be afraid of dying. We don't have to be afraid of death. Now, I've said this before, and individuals I think more than a little half-joking will say to me, well, it's not the death part that, you know, that bothers me. It's, it's not, I, I get that to die is to walk through a door and to open my eyes to see the face of Christ, to see the face of God, to, to be with the saints that have gone before me, and it will be glorious. I get that. It's the dying part. It's the suffering. It's the pain. And, and I think that's actually a good point. That's reasonable. But even there, the Christian has great comfort where God promises not to test us beyond what we can endure, but to grant his children the grace we need moment by moment, day by day, when that hour comes. Paul's point is that no matter the suffering and affliction, in light of the glory to come, it is to be viewed as relatively light and momentary. And for this reason, we can be of good courage, whatever comes our way. And in the meantime, verse 7, we walk by faith, not by sight. Not only are we to be 
courageous and confident, but we are to walk by faith, not by sight. And part of this is a truism in the sense that we have to walk by faith because the reality of the world to come is still um, off in the future. We can't see most of the invisible spiritual kingdom realities, and maybe that's another part of our glorified state where right now we there's so much of the, you know, our spectrum of sight is extremely limited, and not just with respect to color, but with respect to the invisible spiritual world. Theoretically, there are angels. There, there are these invisible realities around us that are, that are hidden from our eyes, the glory of God. And furthermore, when the earth is remade, we are going to see the kingdom of God made visible, concretely so, in, um, uh, in the, the, the planet, in the culture that is created uh, in that period of time, and it will be glorious. But that time is not now. Much, uh, most of that is invisible to the physical eye. And so we walk by faith. Now, we need to understand the Christian is not saying, the pastor is not saying, that faith means we turn our brains off and we just have to make this irrational leap because we have this psychological need for comfort that this life is not the end. That is not what Paul means by faith. Paul means this is a faith where we are fully engaged with the intellect, where we believe not in a, in a rational manner, but because of the evidence that God has already given to us, especially the evidence of the life of Christ, of the promises and the prophecies leading up to his life, his death, and his bodily resurrection. We believe and we walk by faith because it is reasonable to do so, because there is evidence that what we believe is, in fact, true. How does Paul walk by faith? Well, one commentator writes, the apostle fixes his eye on that which cannot be seen, his inner, things like his inner glory, not his outer affliction. He fixes his eyes on his inward renewal, not his exterior decay. He fixes his eyes on the new age to come, not the old. He thinks about resurrection life, not present dying. He thinks about the weighty things, not the trifling, the eternal, not the temporal, the heavenly, not the the earthly. In short, he adopts a perspective of faith, of trusting that for the present moment, glory really does come to expression through affliction. Notice the key word that the writer of Hebrews associates with biblical faith. Now, faith is not just a blind leap. It is an assurance of things hoped for. It is a conviction of things not seen. And so in this life, Paul says, we walk by faith. For Paul, when he thinks about the great future events related to the return of Jesus, He isn't concerned with trying to figure out all the predictions related to the events leading up to Jesus's return. What the apostle longs for is to be prepared for the return of Jesus and to receive the reward of a resurrected body and to enter into heaven's eternal glory in the presence of God. That's where his mindset is. That's what's important. And flowing out of this, Paul's main point 
is that we are to live for God in the present in spite of the hardships because the promises of a perfected resurrection body and life in an eternal glorious world to come makes it worth it. It is worth it. Amen.